If you, uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. It's page 13 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, this is the second week of our journey into the unknown. But let me say three things just by way of introduction to our text this morning. And none of what I'm about to say is going to surprise anyone. Christians lose their way. Despite how sordid they seem, or at least once seemed. Secondly, Christians do the craziest, ungodliest things, in spite of all they know. And thirdly, Christians make apparently ridiculous and unwise choices, even in light of spiritually significant moments and events in their lives. And on the back of this week's events, those thoughts are possibly more relevant than I ever imagined or planned for them to be. But I say those three comments based on two things. The first is personal experience. I can easily think of a number of people, a number of committed Christians who could relate to any one of those. In fact, all three of them. I know I can't. And the second reason I say it, and this is even more important, is based on God's word. And the stories that I encounter in its pages. Now last week we started this journey into the unknown with an absolute hero of the Christian faith. His name's Abram, or Abraham as he's eventually known, who is significant. He's such an example to us that his name appears at least a hundred times in the New Testament. Never mind all the references to him that we find in the book of Beginnings, the book of Genesis. But what I find so encouraging and challenging, so sad and comforting is the discovery that all these statements apply to him. They all apply to this great man of faith who finds himself in the legendary hall of fame in Hebrews 11. Abram lost his way. Abraham's behavior at times was shocking. And Abraham made some of the most appalling choices. Now before we uh, reread from Genesis 12 and verse 10, let's just recall where we left off last week. Abraham has just had one of the most um, uplifting, life-changing, faith-building experiences that any one of us could ever imagine having. God has spoken directly into his life. He's heard God's call to go. He's received a whole bunch of amazing promises directly from God. And he's found out that he's been blessed to be a blessing and with all that ringing in his ears he's packed up he's moved out and he's began his adventure with God his journey into the unknown and Abraham's surrender and his commitment and his obedience are astonishing so far so very good and so he worships God this is where we left off last week although we didn't look at these verses in particular but just towards the last few verses, 6, 7, 8, and 9, we discover that he worships God. He builds a couple of altars. He calls in the name of God. This is a Christian living for God. Not just living for God, he's living with God, and he's acutely aware of God's presence in his day-to-day life. And then you come to verse 10 of chapter 12. 
Let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. Genesis 12, starting at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. We'll come back to that. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is your wife. They will kill me, but will let you live. So say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I look at her or I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Grab a seat. Verse 10 starts, Now there was a famine in the land. And I want you to try and imagine how Abram must have been feeling. Take a look up at verse 2. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. So this can't be right. The reality of famine, the prospect of disaster, the potential for pain, were probably not what Abraham had in mind whenever he heard that God was going to bless him. And immediately we're confronted with a key lesson when it comes to our faith. And this is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. But just because you're in relationship with God and just because you're being obedient to God does not mean that you're exempt from hardships and difficulties and suffering. Nowhere, nowhere does God promise an easy life. And often it is whenever we are in or it's whenever we have been in a great place with God that tough times come. Two other biblical examples of this. Elijah. He has that incredible mountaintop experience on Carmel. It's recorded in 1 Kings 18. God's reality, God's strength, God's goodness have been evident for all to see. Elijah had asked God for a miracle. And he got one. Literal fire from heaven fell. And everyone who was present on that mountain stands or actually lies in awe of God. And Elijah's faith at this moment must have reached an all-time high. And yet what happens next is a sober reminder that Christians are never far from heat. His mountaintop experience is closely followed by a major and a significant threat in his life and Elijah plummets into a state of deep depression and he just wants to die. Second example comes from the life of Jesus. We know this so well. He's just commenced three years of ministry. He's just been baptized by John. He's just heard an audible voice from heaven from his father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we all know what happens next. He spends 40 days alone 
in the wilderness under severe attack, wrestling with extreme temptation. And the fact is, and the reality is, that Christians are not exempt from the tough stuff of life. This idea that if God blesses you, you will breeze through is a complete nonsense. As Charles Swindle has written, the curtain does not fall in life's difficult drama when Christ comes on the stage. And God's blessing was on Abraham. God's blessing was on Elijah. God the Father's blessing was on Jesus. But it didn't mean that for any one of them, life would be hassle-free. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to follow God and yet you're feeling the heat at the moment, then don't buy into the lie that God's abandoned you or that there's something necessarily wrong with your faith. And that's why you're facing what you're facing. Rough times will come. Pain will intrude into our lives. Trials do exist. Temptations are inevitable. Disappointments are common. But here's the thing. It's where you go in the midst of all that is what really matters. And this is where Abraham messed up. Back to the text, verse 10. Now there was famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now as you read that, you think to yourself, well, why would he not do this? I mean, Egypt might have been something like 200 miles away, but because of its location near the Nile, there was definitely going to be food. There was definitely going to be water in abundance. So why not head for there? It makes sense. But here's the issue. Abraham, or Abram, went to Egypt before he went to God. You see, whenever trouble struck, Abraham did what so many of us do, what I do. We take things into our own hands. We decide, I'm going to trust my own judgment. I'm going to, in a sense, and what he did, it seems, is he virtually ignored God and he opted for his own reasoning. Abraham clearly didn't think or wasn't sure that God could actually sustain him through the famine. He wasn't sure that God could deliver on the promises that he would bless him in this context. And so what Abraham does is, I'm going to do my own thing. You see, faith is much easier to profess than it is to possess. It's much easier to say it than to actually live it. And it's frightening how often I do mirror this behavior. You know, I know lots of God's promises, and here's just a selection of them. Not only do I know them, I know them off by heart. God said he's never going to leave me, he's never going to forsake me. He's going to guide me always. And in the classic Proverbs verse, or verses that we write in so many different contexts, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not in your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. And I've heard them and I know them, and yet how often do I actually head off in all sorts of other directions? How seldom do I actually consult God? And instead of turning to God, what I often do is I turn to self. I turn to worry, turn to panic, turn to alcohol, turn to escape, turn to some other coping mechanism. Rather than turn to the one place that I can be certain about. Or how often do I blame God for the hassles, for the disappointments and for the problems I face? And in blaming God, I then choose to ignore him. 
I choose to just try to sort this out myself because at the end of the day there is part of me that thinks God you're partly to blame here do you know one of the uh, one of the greatest challenges in life I have found is this it's to learn to trust God all of the time not just some of the time some of the time is actually easy it's learning to trust God all of the time. When it's good and when it's not so good. When the sun shines in our faces and we feel great. And when the rain lashes us, soaks us to the skin. And quite honestly, we feel rubbish. That's when it's hard to trust God. And maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in a difficult place. And you're tempted. I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to work this out for myself without any real reference and submission to God. And I mean real reference and submission to God. Not just lip service, but where we actually live it, flesh it out, walk it out, live it out. Or you're in a situation that requires trust in God, and yet you are tempted to place your trust elsewhere. But please don't. And the reason I say please don't is because what you discover next from Abraham's story is that you end up drifting further and further away from God. Not only do you end up drifting further and further away from God when you opt for this, but you also go deeper and deeper in the compromise. Back to verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now that is a great line for every husband to use. Okay? Sarah, Sarah was 65 I didn't make any comment yet. Uh, Sarah was was 65 at this stage and Abraham affirmed her beauty. Now, I have written down here, I had thought about going somewhere with that observation, but having drafted and redrafted various comments, I've decided to say nothing else other than encourage every single husband to take a lead from Abraham and turn around to his wife at some point today. In fact, why not do it now and just say, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Go on, do it. No money. <laughs> I, I just brilliant. It's brilliant. Roy would have done it only he's not sitting beside Isabel. <laughs> Verse twelve. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is your wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And in Egypt, at this time, this was the case. Which seems weird. It seems really weird actually. It was the way it worked. A foreigner in search of food was, was very vulnerable. They had no rights. Therefore, everything that that foreigner owned, including his wife, was up for possession. And so Abraham, with total disregard for Sarah's dignity, safety and protection, he opts for deceit and lying in order to save his own skin. Which is totally inappropriate behaviour for any husband, and especially one that has just told his wife that he thinks she's beautiful. Words can ring hollow at times. And so he says in verse 13, listen Sarah, here's what we're going to do. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well, and I love this, for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Talk about looking out for number one. It's brilliant. Abraham Lincoln said this, you can fool some of the people all of the time, all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. Problem is, you can't fool God any of the time. What was Abraham thinking? I mean, did he honestly believe that deceit was a legitimate practice for a friend of God? 
Did he honestly think, hey, God's not going to notice this one? And then to lie. Now, I know those of you who know your Bibles are sitting here going, well, it wasn't a complete lie. Why do I say that? Why was it maybe not a complete lie for Abram to say that Sarah was his sister? Somebody. Because he was, she was. Yeah, good point. Genesis 20:12 makes the point that Sarah was, in fact, Abram's half-sister. So maybe this wasn't a complete and total lie. But the point is, she was also his wife. Not sure how that worked. Not even going to go there. But she was his wife. And so at the very least, what you have here is Abraham being economical with the truth. And according to Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord detests. In fact, seven. And a lion tongue's one of them. And Abraham did, and Christians still do, the craziest and the ungodliest of things. Despite all they know, despite all they know, they still choose to do stuff that makes no sense from a faith perspective. And as well as offending a holy God, it breaks our Father's heart. And the question I just want to simply ask this morning is, why do we do that? Why? Why? Despite all we know of God, despite having had an amazing experience with God, go. Here's a whole bunch of promises. I'm blessing you. You're blessed to be a blessing. And then you just walk away from that. And do that. Verse 14. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman, so it wasn't just the husband's best opinion. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace, and he treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants and animals. So, so far, so good. You see, Abraham isn't killed. Brilliant. But in addition, he gets filthy rich. And it seems that compromise works. At least it works at this stage. Maybe ditching God and the ways of God can lead to an easier life. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you sometimes wonder, do you know, if I wasn't a Christian, life would be a lot more straightforward. Or do you ever look at another Christian's life who appears to be entertaining compromise, and yet, humanly speaking, they're doing okay? And you sometimes wonder, why am I taking this obedience thing so seriously? And Abraham must have thought that he was on a winner. But then, as inevitably happens, the wheels start coming off. But how the wheels start coming off is, again, bizarre for me. Verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh. Sorry? What had he done wrong? How come Abraham isn't inflicted with serious diseases? And his household are inflicted with serious diseases. And why are they inflicted with serious diseases? It says in verse 7, because of Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham messes up and other people suffer. That seems really unfair, God. Abraham and his household hadn't deceived anyone. They hadn't lied to anyone. And yet they find themselves coming down with major illness. But isn't it so true that our sins... Our sins have this massive knock-on effect. And so the husband or the wife 
who commits adultery. She tears her family apart. And the pain and the hurt are felt for years to come. Or the young person who heads off the rails rips his mum's heart out. And sin has this ability to just ripple out and devastate numerous lives. And its impact is far more far-reaching on those who haven't done anything wrong, it would seem. The innocent suffer. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abraham, why have you done this to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I would take her to be my wife? Again, not even going to go there. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders to Abraham and his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. The Egyptian Pharaoh, and this, this I find incredible, the Egyptian Pharaoh, to Abraham's shame, rebukes the friend of God for his questionable ethics. And that's priceless. Because isn't it interesting how often you discover non-Christians who display far more higher morals than Christians. And here's the tragedy in this for me. The tragedy is that this Pharaoh lost respect for Abram and Sarah. But he didn't just lose respect for Abram and Sarah, he lost respect for their God. And Abram's testimony was shot through. And his potential to influence this particular pharaoh for good was gone. As far as this Egyptian was concerned, Abram's faith can't really be that important to him. He might say it is, but it can't really be that important to him if he's willing to compromise to this level. And I sometimes look at my own life and I look at some of the people I know and who know me and who watch some of the choices I make and decisions I take. And I wonder, do they sometimes look on and say, you know, I'm not really sure he actually believes it. I'm not really sure he actually believes it because I don't see him living it. And another interesting feature of this story is how God uses ungodly people to call us back to himself. You see, it's not always in the context of a church meeting or a small group Bible study, or even personal devotional times that God speaks to you. God often speaks into our lives via the most unlikely of sources. And in this case, in Abraham's life, God spoke into his life via an Egyptian pharaoh. And one of the things that I just love, as I, as I come to the end of this part of the story, this part of the journey, one of the things I love about God's word is that it doesn't cover up the failures and the weaknesses of the heroes of the faith. It doesn't actually airbrush them, digitally enhance them. Warts and all get exposed. Abraham was a godly man, but godly men and godly women do mess up. And they don't always get it right. And the Bible doesn't try to convince us that these people were perfect. And you just need to look down the list. Noah was righteous. He was blameless. Another friend of God. He walked faithfully with God, is what it says. And yet we all know he got hopelessly drunk and exposed himself. 
Moses, the rescuer, he kills a man in cold blood and buries him under a pile of sand. David, the man who's after God's own heart, he caves into temptation and he ends up wrecking so many people's lives. Peter, the rock on which the church is built, he struggled to control his language. He didn't always keep his word and he denied his Lord three times. Thomas, the disciple, prepared to die with his master, also wrestles with serious doubts. Godly men and women don't always get it right. They do fail, but with God, failure is never final. And God called Abraham back despite the fact he had lost his way, despite the fact he did some crazy ungodly things, and despite the fact that even after a spiritually high moment in his life, he made a crazy choice. And maybe you are here this morning, but with God you're not where you should be. You're not where you want to be. And you're so aware that there has been compromise in your life or there is compromise in your life and you've let down God and you actually believe that your reputation has been shot through as a Christian. And therefore you don't feel that great about yourself. But if you look at verses 3 and 4 of the next chapter, and we'll come to this in a couple of weeks, but Abraham retraces his steps back to where he had first built that altar. Abraham sensed that need for forgiveness and renewal and cleansing. And so again it says he calls in the name of the Lord. And that's our choice this morning. That no matter where we are, we can retrace our steps. We can re-engage our hearts. We can reconnect our relationship with God. And we're about to take communion in a moment. And nowhere is this opportunity to retrace and re-engage and reconnect more appropriate than around this table? Because around this table, the journey continues.